0: It seems to me that not locking people up in cages against their will and, you know, administering medical treatment for them out of curiosity for, you know, Nazi war experiments, that seems like a pretty low bar. And actually, we don't have much in the way of an aspirational target of what we want to be aiming for.
1: Welcome to the BMJ Podcast. You can't have been listening to this podcast for long without starting to think about patients in research. It's certainly something we think a lot about. We now peer review our research articles to patients and we ask our authors to declare the extent to which patients have been involved in the design of their studies. But what we haven't really done is sit down now with patients, researchers and clinicians to find out what rights should patients have when it comes to research. Should they be setting the full research agenda? Are they just participants or should they be authors too? At Evidence Live recently, we ran a workshop with those constituents, the researchers, the patients, the clinicians, to talk about those patients' rights in research. And the following podcast is our attempt to sum up those discussions. Helen McDonald, the BMJ's UK research editor, and co-host of our talk evidence podcast sat down with paul wicks and emma cartwright in our airbnb in oxford after a long day of chatting
2: so i'm now joined by paul wicks and emma cartwright to talk about a really interesting um workshop that we've just done at the ebm live conference and i should prelude this by saying that um it was great and we were all very energised in the workshop and now we're all feeling a bit tired so we're going to have to try and draw back the the energy of the session. Um, Could you start by introducing yourself
3: please? I'm Emma Cartwright, I'm one of the BMJ patient editors and a researcher and I am doing my PhD in health psychology.
0: My name is Paul Wicks. I'm a neuropsychologist by training. I'm a researcher, uh, particularly in digital health. I'm also a patient and a caregiver.
2: Emma, before we say a bit more about it, can you explain the purpose of the workshop?
3: Yeah, that's such a big question. Thanks, Helen. Put <laughs> me on the spot like that. Yes, yeah, so um, so at EBM Live, we this year wanted to find a way to involve more patients and to have the patient voice more present in the conference in general. So the kind of purpose of this workshop was to really get patients and researchers together to chat about some of the challenges that we know are out there in involving patients in evidence, in guidelines and in research. So the point of the workshop was really just to have everybody in one room to have a chat about these challenges.
2: And did it went as you as you planned, as you imagined? Did yes. you imagine that there
3: were going to be fights so far? <laughs> I mean a little bit. I was kind of hoping for some excitement um, but no I think it went really well actually. I think one of the Uh, I saw in one of our groups, we had one of our researchers and one of the patients having this really interesting dialogue about what it was, who should decide on the research priorities. And the patient was really talking about, you know, they had quite opposing views. Um, The patient really felt like they should be having full control over all of the research priorities in her disease area or in the kind of area that she was in. And the uh, researchers were really pushing back on this and saying, no, our decisions should be made by evidence. We have to provide reasons as to why these are our priorities. And there's a really interesting dialogue between the two of them. And it was nice to see that even after the session finished, they sat there for a long, long time discussing this. And by the end of it, they really came to a conclusion that they were both right and actually that they should both be involved and that they both had a place in setting the priorities. And Paul did a really interesting thing because you
2: polled... Some of the audience at EBM live and an interesting fact was that less than half of them had really done um, patient involvement or partnership or some degree of engagement in their research. Um, So there were some people that hadn't done it and didn't plan to some people who tried it and it hadn't worked out very well. Some people who, what was the other category?
0: So there were four. So there were, yes, and it went well. Yes, but it didn't add value. No, no. And I don't plan to. No, but I plan to. Okay. So
2: he polled the audience and um, there were a lot of people who had tried it and found it useful, but there was also more than half of the audience who either hadn't tried it, um, and maybe they planned to, or maybe they didn't, or they had tried it and hadn't gone very well. So it was quite an interesting workshop to begin with, thinking that maybe half of the people coming to the workshop might not be very much on our side.
0: yeah, absolutely. And I think we, we intentionally wanted to invite people who perhaps had not had the opportunity to involve patients in their work before, um, partially because they could actually hear directly from uh, patients living with conditions. Some of the researchers here are, in a sense, meta-researchers. They do research about research and actually can be quite far away from the lived experience of what it's like to have cancer or live with a, a medical procedure or a surgical intervention that has gone wrong uh, in some way. And so, and so that can be very helpful. Um, we've seen in the past people give a number of reasons why they haven't sort of done PPI. Um, a lot of it can be inertia. You know, they've never done it before. So it's hard to do something new for the first time. Um, a lot of it is being a bit nervous about what is the right way to do it. Um, some of it can be logistic. Where do you find people to contact? Um, do you have to get a room? Do you have to get tea and biscuits? Um, does the room have to be accessible? How many people's enough? Are these people representative enough? And then, you know, sometimes you may just feel that there are uh, uh, shortcuts. Maybe I'll just go read a few Twitter posts uh, and, you know, read a few forums and, you know, perhaps that's that's my my job done here. But I think then what you're really missing out on is that specific feedback on your specific protocol or your specific review uh, of the literature and I think that's where a lot of the value is so certainly want to acknowledge it is hard um, but there are you know useful resources out there and hopefully what we got today was a little bit of um, that enthusiasm to to sort of see ah here's some flash of insight that I could get for my project how can I use that when I I get back to home base. So we
2: had four questions to which there were no right or wrong answers um but sort of to what extent type things so I'm just going to take you through the four questions and I'd be really interested to know just what your immediate thoughts were on what you heard um from the people there so the first question we asked them was what rights do patients and the public currently have in research and what rights should they have
0: One of the things that strikes me having to be sort of a patient and researcher is that when you look at the rights of research participants, they're frequently framed in terms of ethics, like the Declaration of Helsinki or the Belmont Report. It seems to me that not locking people up in cages against their will and, you know, administering medical treatment for them out of curiosity for, you know, Nazi war experiments, that seems like a pretty low bar. And actually, we don't have much in the way of an aspirational target of what we want to be aiming for in terms of what how we want participants to feel, what we want that experience to be like, um, or how satisfying it is for the broader research patient community um, for the outputs of that actual research.
3: I think the big thing for me was that everybody in that group were really talking about the fact that patients have to have a right to be involved in the research from the start that they have to have the right to be have to access everything that comes out of all of research um, and that they felt that they had the right to have a say in every element of the research I think for me they were the three key points that people were chatting or kind of discussing um, on this topic. Was
2: there much variation in how people saw those things or it was all quite
3: harmonious? Um no, I think that I think there was some variation and particularly between researchers and patients. I think patients have a much stronger need or want for the right to be involved, and I think sometimes researchers maybe feel like it's more of a an opportunity for them to be involved, so they don't it's not that they necessarily have a right to have a full say on exactly what is discussed in research or something like that. They feel like there should be a balance between patient involvement and researcher evidence and information.
0: I thought one of the things that was uh, great was a very long list of demands. I think sometimes you see single issues around, say, open access or trial transparency, uh, and all of those are quite deep rabbit holes um, by themselves. But, you know, People were saying we want the right to understand how these protocols were developed or how the endpoints might have been changed. We want to see the data. We want to be able to work with it, maybe do our own reanalyses. And I think that's increasingly possible because people have access to powerful tools, um, now a lot of open source packages. Um, but I think one of the things that's interesting is a lot of researchers might look at their institutional answers to why they can't share data. You know, perhaps this has got uh, identifying information or perhaps, you know, they are only know how to share things with bona fide uh, researchers. And so the idea what that they might... What
2: do you mean by that, Paul?
0: Well, I think there's, uh, for example, when you look at data sharing um, statements that are attached to journals, you know, there is this proviso that if I've published a paper um, and it's got some data, then in theory, another scientist can come along and if they are, you know, going through a rigorous process, I should give them access to a curated, well-labeled dataset. It's a little bit less clear what I should do in a traditional institution if a patient comes and asks me that question. Um, perhaps I have less reassurance that I can guarantee the data will be held in a compliant way. My my risk management people, my IT people, my R and D people at my institution might be nervous about this, um, and I might have less confidence, say, that someone who doesn't have the requisite training might do a in, you know the traditional sense proper statistical analysis. But I think what we were hearing from from the patients there was to say, that's your problem, that's science's problem, and and we want to take a look at it. Now, I do think that there are solutions to that coming along. So. There are potentially now more, say, um, data repositories in the cloud where you are able to interrogate the data, do basic visualizations, maybe even bring in um, statistical code from other packages where you don't need to download the data. You have to sort of play with it and manipulate it and what have you. And and I think this is to be encouraged. Yes, not every single patient living with an illness is necessarily going to want to play around with these things, but I think technology is making that easier. Um, And one of the sort of metaphors I often give is most of us don't know about how to launch a rocket into space and we don't know about telemetry and we don't know about mapping systems. But we can all use Google Maps. You know, we can all use a satnav. And that's because with the right software and the right user interface, it is possible to take these very complex things and then turn them into, you know, useful, testable decision aids even though they are always in beta and we all know not to trust our satnavs in every kind but the point is that it's it's a system that is taking you know literally rocket science (laughs) and turning it into you know here's how you can follow this along here's how you can make useful conclusions to sort of you know um, live your life.
2: Something I've always found very interesting Emma was when we started talking about this workshop and you specifically started talking about this question of If you are a patient who goes into a trial or a study you have a lot of rights and you know what to expect and there's a particular process around it and it feels like um, entering into this different role as co-creators and owners of the research is quite different Um, and actually it highlights that roles of clinicians and roles of researchers are not particularly well documented so it feels a bit like you're finding your way into a an an ecosystem which might vary in lots of different ways in different research fields in different institutions and trying to nestle in as a group of patients and not um wanting things to be nice and tidy and well circumscribed and well Um, you know sort of clear what you're getting involved in and sometimes it's not and I think that's been a really interesting um, reflection which we didn't solve today but but I think many of the things that were raised um, came back to that point so some of the other questions we went on to discuss all stem from that first question really don't they so one of the things that we particularly wanted to talk about was to what extent should research priorities be set by patients so what did you hear in answer to that question that interested you
3: that this was a really interesting one because a lot of what um kind of first off the patients were um, and the researchers were saying yes patients should have the ability to set the priorities in research however how we put this into practice is really difficult like how you actually find patients first of all how you ensure that you have kind of the variability across patients you know it's very easy to find a patient or a group of patients who are very vocal on a subject to set the priorities for research but actually how do you ensure that you're getting the voice of all patients across even just across one condition is really really difficult to do but it was really important to do and both patients and researchers really agreed that you had to find a variable group of patients to ensure if if they are going to set priorities you have to make sure that that's across the whole group of patients and it's really difficult to do and it. is it
2: one of those things where it feels like you have to do it very well or you don't do it at all or you, or does it feel like you have to be pragmatic and take the people that are there or the information that's there and make the best decision that you can with the people that you have
3: Yeah, it's quite interesting because I think going into this session, I assumed that we would be having these pragmatic discussions, but actually what I heard today was much more of that this has to be done rigorously and it has to be done in a systematic way and that we have to be aware of biases and that's something to be really cautious of when we are asking patients to set priorities in research. Um, So it was really interesting.
0: I think one of the things that, that strikes me working in a couple of different disease verticals, as, as the companies would talk about them sometimes, is, um, you know, you may be thinking about you know, Parkinson's disease or breast cancer or something like that. But to the, um, you know, scientific, medical, industrial complex, their silos might be neuroscience or genetics and you know a lot of the breakthroughs might come around of of animal work or pre-clinical cellular work or something that's actually quite far away from the patient end of things so whereas patient setting priorities will be about the problems that are familiar to them and the research funders that they can influence like say their charities or even some governmental agencies you know um, that perhaps is not having an influence on say the biotech uh, investment scene in Cambridge England or Cambridge Massachusetts where a lot of this stuff uh, is actually going to turn into to breakthrough so yes we can be setting priorities of the bit that they can control but it's not quite clear to me you know what percentage of the pie uh, that is in terms of uh, money or influence or likelihood to come up with a a breakthrough or you know a major uh, change in in, in treatment paradigm. So
2: I think a consistent message we heard was if you're going to do this well you basically need to invest in it and someone's got to pay for it. Did you hear any interesting solutions about who should be doing that?
3: I think a lot of what I heard was a about the there was a lot of talk about the big funding agencies around how we fund this from the start but also how we fund this before we even get funding what um, do you mean by that so in terms of when people are submitting things like grants how how do we fund patients to be involved and to have a say in grants when there's no funding attached to those yet so the reason that patients need to be uh, funded to do this is that they're not paid in. This is not their job. You know, researchers have a salary that they are paid every single day to attend and to be part of these grant applications. However, asking a patient to either attend meetings and um, to give their input, or even just to give their input online, they're not being paid for their time. Um, and for a lot of patients to have input on grants cost them money. Um, whether that's to attend meetings, whether that's in their time, whether that's to um, have somebody look after their children or their their um, the patient that they're caregiving for, their family member that they're caregiving for, um, it can be really costly. So it's um, the importance of giving patients some fo- form of support um, financially um, to do this is really important. Um, so there was a lot of discussion around whether the funding agency should be covering that or whether universities should be covering that or whether, you know, how they should be covering it is is a big challenge. But I think you're right in that the main priority was that they had to be funded in some way, shape or form. Because so- in a way, it's like a sort of huge quality improvement project, isn't it? This.
0: Yeah and, and there's a, a question endeavor. about timeliness so for example if a, if a if an say you took a rare disease that perhaps hasn't had much research but say a company's got something in pipeline and they think it's about to be approved there may be work in this space around awareness, uh, you know, burden of disease that goes into, you know, health economics papers and that types of things, or workshops and symposiums that really is setting the stage for a, a health technology assessment conversation at some point. And I think the risk there is that when there's commercial interests, that there can be a tendency to, you know, inflate the particular issue that this treatment happens to work for. So the approach that, say, the FDA was taking in the US um, with the patient focused drug development groups was to, try and take a, a, a systematic approach to gathering the Im- important, say, symptoms or quality of life impacts that a disease has when there wasn't a particular technology to, to assess. Um, and so, for example, you know, they had these town hall meetings that incorporate, so in the case of, say, Parkinson's disease, you know, we get 100 advocates in the room, share their experience, get um, lots of data from Michael J. Fox Foundation or Patients Like Me did a big um, data report um, prior to there being a, a particular product uh, to sort of, you know, fit into that, that landscape. When you don't do that, what I found is that you see the, the landscape um, shifted to say, well, gosh, there's this product for you know drug-induced dyskinesia coming along. Isn't drug-induced dyskinesia the number one concern of everybody living with this illness? Um, but that approach isn't scalable. We can't, you know, if there's 7,000 diseases in ICD, we can't keep flying 50, 100 patients at a time to DC. So FDA instead shared sort of a recipe book for how the patient advocacy organizations could run their own versions of these workshops or these surveys again at a time when you know there was it was uh, the right time to do it for gathering the data um rather than you know in response to an upcoming uh, technology need where that that risk of bias and um you know uh, shaping the data in a, in a commercial direction is, is a, a higher risk
2: so the next thing we talked about was um totally at the other end of the scale about patients accessing I just came to call it information in the end because we were sort of talking about uh, publications, but also data sets um, and synthesized research and guidelines. So sort of information that has some connection to evidence that they might want to have.
0: It's not every disease community that is necessarily engaging with the primary literature in all that much detail. So... My, my experience has been that there's always a subset of people who sort of track, say, new drug developments in great detail or, or look at trials in great detail. Um, but the challenge is historically it's been hard just to get beyond the abstract, um, both in terms of understanding all the content, but also sort of accessing it through The paywall Um, we are increasingly seeing people being able to access data that's been you know made uh, available through open access publications or you know in the future it'll be things like med archive where there's a lot more transparency to that Um, but you know we've heard several times throughout this conference about the risk of say predatory journals that you know are very easy to access but, but don't have great content there's a risk if we're not making the good quality evidence the good quality guidelines not just accessible but actually promoted as good seo good get search engine optimization so um if i'm a patient interested in an answer to a particular question if i were to, to google that what quality of evidence am i seeing coming to the top is it from some predatory journal where someone's put in very biased information or is it these these great summaries you know um Provided by uh, publishing groups. One of the challenges there is sometimes that's actually a commercial product that those companies sell, and so they can't, you know, give it all away for free because subscriptions to medical students or schools or libraries or whatever are part of the way we we fund the investment um, to get that to work. Um, one of the things that was great that Pear was showing in his presentation was the idea that when. Um, guidelines and data were um, done in almost a computable machine readable format then for one thing it'd be easier to translate them into different languages but also that you might be able to make say different levels of summary for different levels of experts so perhaps there is almost something resembling a lay summary um, that could be extracted from, from that information but that equally if you're drilling down to the more detailed data it's all relying on the same data set and the same code base. And so it's not just say, words, um, it's actually, um, yeah, it's, it's sort of code and computable. And that's also of great benefit to people who want to do meta-analysis um, with that data later on, or to sort of update that evidence and, and sort of re I think that was it.
2: really interesting. And a the theme, I sat with this table um, talking about um, access to findings, and it made me think of, of several things. Um, and one was I think there was a strong feeling in the group that everyone wanted to be looking at the same information. One from a level of trust building that nothing is secret and special hidden away to a particular party. But also when you, I think you think of how expensive all of this is, that actually producing multiple versions of the same thing over and over again um, is also very costly. And if there's a way that you can reduce some of um, those costs by sharing the information, then that's very useful.
0: I think a lot of patients would be outraged if they knew about the very poor degree of data sharing and collaboration that, that happens, you know, within research. Um, I've I've long held the belief that that many. Uh, People believe that when they go to their doctor and they share their experiences of their, you know, their arthritis or their back pain or their depression or their dementia or what have you, that that data is all being used for the good by all the smart people that their tax money has paid for their whole life. And I think they'd be very disappointed to find that, you know, data collected at this university never goes outside that university's walls and is jealously guarded, or sometimes doesn't even leave one investigator's, uh, you know, computer. Um, and especially now that people are just much more familiar with data in their day-to-day lives, you know they can see you know, bank transactions and every you know Amazon delivery they've ever had. Um, but also they're very aware that you know data on their smartphone can can be very re- revealing about them, um, and that they're aware of the interoperability of those systems. You know I can activate one service from my uh, you know Amazon speech device or what have you, and they all sort of talk to each other and it just just kind of works. I think they'd be shocked at the state of interoperability. Of those standards not just from a technical point of view but from the fact that we don't play well with others as researchers because to some extent you know that data is their currency and their ability to produce unique content which turns into you know publications and other credits that they can use to you know advance their career or get more funding
2: the other thing we talked quite a bit about was um not just the importance of researchers and patients um And policymakers as users of information but of the fact that we might need other people to help us share that information and the importance of having information which is presented in different ways that's in audio or visual or online or short or long and I guess really valuing uh, communication as an important part of the process and again recognizing that that in itself is a costly activity that isn't particularly well-funded at, at stages of the system at the moment, which I guess is what you're leading to, Paul, with with things like publication models that you you need, that work comes with a cost and someone has to pay for it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, with, with the greatest of respect to my research-orientated colleagues, um, those who are the most detail-orientated are not necessarily the best at communicating what is the actual implication. You know, where's the so what? And, and oftentimes that can even just be left hanging. You know, more research is needed. Or, you know, one day this might help us to understand something. Well, one day is today. <laughs> what Was this actually useful? Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, it, personally, I would prefer people would be more bold about actually drawing conclusions from, from their data or, or, or what have you. But then you know, there are others that say that, uh, no, it's, you, you should bring together your evidence and your data in a systematic fashion, and it is for others to sort of draw those conclusions.
2: Going back to, we were at a conference full of people who are very into ebm and you can't go to a conference like that without the word bias being mentioned at least once a minute i think and the final question we asked people to consider was whether um involving patients or groups of patients or the public could affect the quality of research or evidence and create a bias and you already talked emma about this idea that some sort of selection bias around the people that you bring to the table at the beginning could um affect the quality of the evidence. Did you hear any anything else of interest on that front about bias that could be created by involving patients?
3: I feel like the most interesting thing for me on this was that this was the most popular topic to be discussed and everybody just seemed to flock to this question. We asked people to choose what question. And this was the one that everybody seemed to really get into their teeth into. It was something that really resonated with people. Um, And I think because it is something partly because, like you say, we were at a conference where bias is up there in people's minds. But I think also from patients' perspective, there is this sense of I am one person and that I can give my perspective, but actually I may not provide a perspective of all patients. And it is something that's really at the top of people's agendas when we're thinking about how much influence patients are going to have in research. We all agree that patients should be involved but it is something that I don't think we have quite got to grips with yet in how we ensure that what we are delivering is still evidence-based, but it's also not biased to the patients involved.
0: I think there's there's a couple of questions. One is around the bias of the patients who contribute to things like PPI. Um, certainly, we know that um, you know more privileged and advantaged people have the time have the resources to come and you know uh, spend time and also speak perhaps the same language literally but also the same kind of you know code as as researchers. Um, I think that's uh, certainly something that, that that we need to address. Um, but there's also this question of whether or not uh, actually doing things in a way that might be more patient centric is going to reduce the rigor of, of studies. I mean, I suppose one question to ask is could it actually improve it? You know, we know that randomized control trials can select quite a biased group of people can um, have outcome measures that slew towards what regulators think are important rather than patients think are important Uh, but then when that evidence has to turn into whether or not someone will pay for it um, we have a whole different set of questions and I think that being closer to the patient and having more of that involvement is likely to have this sort of you know thread that, that runs all the way through to say not only did it work but it worked to you know a scientific standard and that was worth paying for or that was valuable enough for someone to spend their time you know, taking this pill every day or injecting it every month or, or, or living with side effects and being willing to, to deal with it. So if anything, my hope is we should systematically test out different ways to see how patient involvement could improve the quality of, of research.
1: You've been listening to Helen McDonald, Emma Cartwright and Paul Wicks talk about patient rights in research. And that was recorded at EBM Live. If you're interested in that and want to join in the conversation and you have to live in North America, or at least can get there, then you're in luck. EBM Live 2020 is going to be happening in Toronto and registration is already open. Go and have a look at ebmlive.org to find out more. That's it for this podcast. But for more of our podcasts, go to bmj.com slash podcasts. There you'll find our full back catalogue. That's years of podcasts, all available for free. You'll also find out how to get in touch if there's anything you'd like to tell us or any ideas you might have for people to talk to or topics to cover. So that's it for this podcast. Until next time, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.